Good evening and welcome back to our pastor's class here at Hickory Grove. It's so good to have you join us again as we continue our series through Jerry Bridges' book entitled Respectable Sins. Now this book, as you're surely aware of now, it's a book with a provocative title that's designed to help us see that there are many sins in our lives that you can't help but oftentimes regard as respectable. In other words, it's those things that the Lord hates, but we are so inclined to do that we often forget they are sin. And so today we're nearing the end of this study. We've looked at several of these respectable sins, and today we're going to look at a handful that I'm going to categorize under two big categories. And these categories are going to be a lack of self-control and then a lack of selflessness, or you could say conversely, all the species of selfishness. And I think you'll also notice that one big umbrella term that's going to overlay all of these respectable or subtle sins today is nothing short than the sin of pride. And so I want to ask God to help us as we walk through these chapters in Jerry Bridges' book, as we pull out these respectable sins. But before I pray, I'd be remiss if I did not take this opportunity to also express on behalf of all of us here at Hickory Grove our thanksgiving to God, to you who have served our country so faithfully this Veterans Day. We thank God for your service. We salute you. We praise the Lord for you. And so today, as I pray, I want to pray not only for our time in the Word, but I want to pray on behalf of you who have served us. Would you join me now as we pray? Father in heaven, we do praise you for the great freedoms we have in Christ and the temporal freedoms you've given us here in this nation. For those brothers and sisters and others who have served us, we thank you, O God, for them, and we ask that your hand would be upon them. And now, Lord, as we open your word, would you grant us the grace to have ears to hear, eyes to see, and a heart to understand. And I ask this now in Jesus' name. Amen. God opposes the proud. Stark, unequivocating, crystal clear. He is opposed to the proud. And this should not shock us, for pride is deadly. It's like a metastasizing cancer within, slowly killing you, oftentimes unaware. Pride is blinding. It makes us become short-sighted, myopic, where we can't see further than a foot or two in front of us. We become self-absorbed, and all we can see is our own needs, our own wants, our own desires, and we become blind, oblivious to the needs, wants, and desires of others. Pride can be subtle. It's oftentimes undetected. Pride manifests itself in so many ways that it almost becomes our personality, our nature, normal human behavior. But today I want you to see that there are several species of pride, several subtle sins that are in the wake of pride that the Lord hates that He calls us to crucify, 
that he clearly, explicitly defines as sin. And so today what we're going to do is we're going to look at some of these subtle sins. And I just want you to remember as kind of a theme to hold on to tonight, pride can be subtle. It's not always overt. It oftentimes manifests itself in ways you overlook. And so remember just how deadly and blinding and subtle pride can be. And now look with me, if you will, at these subtle sins, these subtle species of pride. First off, I think we ought to do this. We need to recognize that to see these subtle sins, to see what pride can produce within us, we need to look at its fruit. So that's what I first want to call you to. I want you to see the fruit of pride in your life. And here are just a couple ways pride bears fruit in our life. And I would call this bad fruit because we're going we're gonna to present it in a negative sense. So if you're taking notes, I want you to mark this down. Number one, I want you to see that first off, one fruit of pride in our life is a lack of self-control. I want you to see this with me. It's a lack of self-control. Now, let's just consider self-control for a moment. It is a fruit of the Spirit. Self-control is one of those facets that you, you don't even have to be a believer to recognize its virtue. Ours is a day in which there are many men and women who prize the, the uh, virtue of self-control, whether it be in terms of athletics or diet or career. Everybody likes a guy who can, who's got his grip together, who can make it happen. So consider with me self-control. It's your ability to govern or to moderate or to even restrain your desires and cravings or, or even go so far as your emotions, your passions. And so when you lack it, what you are inferring is that you do not have the ability. You are consistently failing to govern and to moderate or to restrain your passions, your emotions, your desires, or your cravings. Now, who amongst us has not experienced this? Who amongst us would say we have got it down? I want you to see just how subtle this sin can end up being, though. It pervades our lives in ways we probably don't appreciate. And I want you to see biblically why this can be so subtle. You see, when you lack self-control, you end up becoming vulnerable to a whole host of sins. Proverbs 25 verse 28, you can mark it down in your margin. It, in its own uh, pithy way, that proverb says that a man without self-control is like a city that's been broken into and left without walls. In other words, he is using this word picture to help us get that if we lack self-control, we become as a defenseless city. We become as one who is totally open to the attack of the enemy. So I want you to see self-control in and of itself may seem like a personality quirk. It may just seem like a foible, but I want you to feel that if you lack it, if you are not bringing this before God and saying, Oh God Almighty, would you help me to have self-control as you've called me to? You are making yourself vulnerable to the attack of the enemy. Indeed, the Apostle Paul, in his second letter to Timothy, chapter 3, verse 3, he describes a lack of self-control as one of the key vices 
of the end days. In other words, when God finally comes again, Jesus in his triumphant second coming, one of the signs of his second coming is going to be a world, a society, overcome with a lack of self-control. So hear me, brother and sister, he has called us to this fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and last but not least, self-control. But let's take a step back and view some of the ways we tend to lack it. Let's get a little specific. There are at least three ways that most men and women tend to struggle with self-control. And so I, I present these before you as a way for you to begin self-analyzing. And you, and you could surely add to this list. For one hand, we tend to lack self-control when it comes to eating and or drinking. Now the Bible has a word for this, it has the word gluttony or conversely drunkenness, which is a whole different layer to this conversation. Let's just fixate on gluttony. You know, one of the problems with lacking self-control in eating and drinking is it means you have a life that is bent on constantly indulging. You ever find yourself living for a meal? Mercy, I do. I, unlike the girl the Lord gave me as a wife, I'm one of those guys that lives to eat, whereas my wife just eats to live. I mean, she likes a good meal, but she doesn't like food nearly as much as I do. I can't wait for the next meal. The problem with that mentality, it may seem morally neutral, is given enough time, you can become so dependent and fixated on the feeling that a good meal gives you that it becomes, as it were, a drug. And before long, you have an addiction to sustenance in such a way that it not only will have ill effects on your health, here's where I think the Bible's really getting at. You become a slave to it. You become a slave to your belly. Your appetites become your taskmaster. And what God is calling us to is self-control, wherein we are not mastered by anything, including our own appetites. And so, just consider that species of, of, of a lack of self-control in eating and drinking, gluttony. Uh, another way that's fairly common is we tend to lack self-control with regards to our temper. Just consider all the ways that you have outbursts of temper. In fact, probably the best way to characterize or to describe temper is to say you have this quick burst of anger followed by calm. So you could describe that as lacking control of your emotions. Now, who amongst us has not had moments where we can't help but have anger, whether it's righteous or unrighteous, we just have those moments where we're frustrated. The problem with lacking self-control in temper is you do not have any control over your emotions at that point. And you're, there can be a lot of collateral damage if you don't get self-control over your temper. This is why James in chapter 1 verse 19 bids we be slow to anger. This is from the Holy Spirit of God. He is calling us as believers to be slow to it, to have self-control so that our emotions don't get the best of us. We need to remember that lacking self-control can often manifest itself in a hot temper. And then third and finally, and perhaps most commonly, I would dare say, is we tend to lack self-control with regards to our finances. Man, how easy is it to lack self-control 
in finances in a day that is, I think, charitably described as materialistic from top to bottom. Ours is a culture where materialism reigns, where your material goods define your reality, your happiness, your measure of success. Ours is a day where greed has become a watchword for success, where we tend to hoard, and not in the crazy sense like the television show, I just mean we tend to gather, as Jesus makes clear in John, where we just keep filling up our barns with more and more things. It's like our own proverbial insurance policy, where if we can accumulate more and more, we feel happy, secure. Ours is a day where generosity tends to be lacking and indebtedness tends to be growing. And all of those fall in the wake of an inability to have self-control in our finances. God has called us to not serve. Indeed, He has said we cannot serve. He and money. That money must not be our taskmaster. Indeed, he says it is exceedingly difficult for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. It'd be easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle, Jesus memorably says. The point being, if you love money that much, you are going to have an exceedingly difficult time loving God the way he has called you and made you to love him. So it is incumbent upon us to take a step back and recognize, oh God, in what sense am I lacking self-control with my finances? You ought to take a step back and ask yourself, and are you living above your means? Do you have any margin for generosity? If you don't, that should be a red flag in and of itself. Are you giving faithfully and sacrificially to the ministry of your local church and to other causes for Christ? Uh, do you find yourself uh, living paycheck to paycheck, not out of necessity, but out of extravagance? where the truth of the matter is you probably could trim here and probably could trim there and you would have the margin you need? Do you find yourself consumed with wanting bigger and better in terms of houses and cars and education and career? Do you find yourself consumed with pursuing the almighty dollar? You must lay this before the Lord and say, oh, God, would you grant me self-control over my finances? I do not want to be a slave to this. I want money to be a servant of your glory. I don't want to be a slave to this. Those are just some species of a lack of self-control, which I regard as the first key fruit of pride in our study tonight. But there's a second big category I want you to see, not just a lack of self-control, now see with me, secondly, uh, another fruit is a lack of selflessness. Self-control and selflessness. Conversely, uh, we tend to abound in selfishness. And what Jerry Bridges does in these chapters is he draws out several different ways uh, a lack of selflessness manifests itself in our lives. So what are those things we tend to do that point to the selfishness that's deep within us. How do I, how do you tend to manifest selfishness in your life? Well, these might step on your toes. I, I know they did me. I want to show you four different, and of course the list could be much longer than this. Here's four different, here's my word again, species of sin that are going to illustrate for us 
a lack of selflessness. The first one I want you to mark down is this. Number one, take a look at the word envy. 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 One of the seven deadly sins you've probably heard it said before. Envy. Let's define it. Envy is, you could describe as this resentful awareness of the advantages others have. So you know somebody's got an advantage over you, and by the way, that's life. It is not a level playing field. And you resent the fact that somebody has that advantage over you. So let's tease this out a little bit. How, how does this tend to play out? You tend to envy those with whom you most closely identify. In other words, dads don't tend to envy the soccer mom. There's just too much separation between them in terms of life role, what they do on a daily basis, but soccer moms tend to envy other soccer moms easily because they're functioning in parallel roles and there starts to become this comparison of well, what kind of mother are you and what kind of a mother are you? Or let's, let's keep going down this path. Parents that have a child playing soccer don't tend to envy parents who have a child that paints. But parents tend to envy their uh, other children if they are both playing the same sport, perhaps on the same team, and there becomes this sense of competition, whereas there's this desire to uh, have your child excel over them and to resent the fact if the other child has an advantage. Or consider your own career. You probably don't resent, you probably don't have any envy for somebody who's several positions below you in the proverbial totem pole. However, you probably struggle at length with envy, uh, envying those who are either in a similar position to you or maybe somebody that got promoted above you and you didn't think they should have. You resent their advantage. This is where envy gets its grip. It grips us when we want to excel over somebody and we resent the fact that they have an advantage over us. In particular, you're going to notice that envy really hones in on those areas, not only where you have a parallel with somebody else, it hones in on those areas that you value the most. So maybe you don't really care what kind of house you live in. You, you know, you're just, you're not a house person. You don't care and you're fine that your house is what it is and you don't mind at all that your friend has a much bigger home. But what you do really mind is that your friend has a more prominent, public, celebrated career than you. That he gets invited to do and enjoy a lot more things than you do. Your value is there, and therein lies the grip, the foothold of envy. And so I would just want you to see this, and we're gonna, at the end of this lesson today, we're gonna pull out how we can die to these. So lest you think I'm just pointing all these out, we're gonna get there, but just examine your own heart and say, oh God, where and what in my life do, has envy got a foothold? Who are those people? What are those things in my life that I am envious of and would you crucify them, oh God? Now let's look at a second uh, sin that's closely related to envy. Mark this down, number two, or two B, you could say. Let's look at the sin of jealousy, very closely related to envy. And I would define and distinguish jealousy as an intolerance of rivalry. When you're jealous, you don't want anybody to come close to rivaling you. 
you, you, you just flee it. You hate it. You don't want anybody to come close to touching your coattails. You don't want this rivalry. Now, there, there is, biblically speaking, a morally positive category of jealousy. Probably the best example would be God Himself who has a righteous jealousy, a zeal for His glory. He says, My glory I will not give to another in the book of Isaiah. In other words, God is jealous. He's in tolerance of anybody or anything attempting to rival His rightful place as God and Lord. Moreover, you'll see some of the apostles like Paul demonstrate a zeal for God's glory that he is in effect saying, I am jealous that you would give God the glory and not these other things. That is a righteous category, but the truth of the matter is few of us ever fall into that ditch. We all find ourselves in the unrighteous category of jealousy more often than not. We find ourselves a lot like King Saul, who was so overcome with jealousy with regards to King David, the rising budding King David, that he basically was on a murderous rampage for quite some time, attempting to put an end to David's ascendant reign. Or just consider the Jews who were greatly jealous of Jesus, the Sanhedrin leaders who saw his acclaim, saw the peoples following him, and out of this jealous, bitter rage, they sought him for crucifixion. This is more akin to the jealousy we battle on a daily basis, wherein we fear that somebody who's equal to us will become superior to us. That's the definition of jealousy, closely related, as you can see, to the sin of envy. Now, let's put those on the shelf. We're going to come back and address all these at the end, but let's look at a third way we tend to lack selflessness. Um, number three, I want you to see this, competitiveness. Competitiveness is one of those sins that, I mean, it's so common, it's almost glorified in our culture, particularly if you're into athletics of any kind. Well, I mean, at the heart of athletics is this sense of competition. Moreover, competition is baked into our economic system. Capitalism is in and of itself built on the premise that you got to compete in order to make this market thrive. Well, we do need to take a step back and just recognize that competition, this competitive spirit, can so easily degenerate into sin and we tend to excuse it, ignore it, not recognize it's there altogether. I think the point we ought to consider is what is the motivation underlying competition? Do you find yourself often while engaged in sport, your competitive spirit is basically a desire to glorify yourself over another? In other words, competition for you is basically winning at another person's expense. It's winning at almost any cost. That's the heart of sinful competitiveness. How many of you find yourself in your career, perhaps you're in sales, you are attempting at all costs to win. You want to be number one, and being number one is not working unto the Lord, giving your best. It is glorying over another. It is reigning supreme. You can do this in parenting, where you want your child to excel, not out of merely a sincere love for your child and a desire for them to flourish, but you want to prove yourself as a parent. 
and you want your child to excel over another child for bragging rights, for your own personal sense of satisfaction and glory. Therein lies the subtle, insidious species of sin called competitiveness. It goes so far as education. Competitiveness is good in education insofar as it can motivate you to work harder and harder, but if you are getting better grades because you want to glory over all the other uh, colleagues, classmates that have not gotten as great of grades, the Bible offers no assurance for those of you and I who are just completely consumed with this desire to glory in and of ourselves over and against another. So see with me now, envy, jealousy, competitiveness. A fourth one we could put on this list is being controlling. A controlling person is somebody who manipulates others <clears throat> for their own advantage. So let's consider how a controlling person can operate. Oftentimes uh, a personality type can be controlling. Maybe you have a real strong personality and you tend to control your environment through sheer willpower. You strut into any room and you ensure that everybody knows that you're in charge and you like to dominate in any given situation, whether it's in your place of work, in your Sunday school class, or in your own home. Oftentimes a controlling personality controls with anger. So if you ever disagree with them, they respond with anger and resentment to put you in your place and to ensure that you not ever test them again. Oftentimes a controlling person manipulates by guilt or even something as bad as character assassination. So in other words, <clears throat> perhaps in a marriage, uh, a controlling personality would be one in which if you don't get your way, you start guilting your spouse and making them feel bad about who they are and how they treat you. And you kind of have this victim mentality and it's just manipulative. It's to get them to do what you want them to do. Or, heaven forbid, you have gone so far that you begin to assassinate the character of anybody and everybody who would ever dare question you or stand up to you. And before you know it, everybody in your life is an idiot but you. And you just have this air about you where you are the only person that's right in any room, in any given situation. That is a controlling personality. And these all interconnected are species, subspecies, you could say, of this sin of a lack of selflessness, this, this selfish demeanor, this selfish heart, wherein God becomes, as it were, a non-existent being. You may worship Him with your lips, but your heart is far from Him. He is out there. And your life is basically self-absorbed and it is consumed. It is enthroned with yourself. And at that point, you become a person who's overcome with anybody daring to touch your throne. That's envy. You don't want anybody who has an advantage to come at you. Jealousy. You become consumed with anybody who may take a shot at you, who may attempt to rival you, who may have some sort of strength or gift that could compete with you. You start to become super competitive about anything and everything. And if anybody or, or anything happens to be as good or as gifted as you, you start, to you start to act in such a way where I've got to win at any cost. And you start calculating and compromising in a whole host of ways because the biggest value in your life at that moment is winning. And lastly, a personality beset with those sins tends to become a controlling one. That's a person who loves having a grip, control on his environment, 
and ends up going so far as making anybody and everybody around them, whether they want to or not, submit to their will in any given situation. These are the fruits of pride, a lack, a lack, a lack of self-control and a lack of selflessness. So let's conclude our time today by seeing how we can sever the root of this fruit tree. We've seen its fruit, and so in order to get it gone, you can't just pull, pluck the fruit off the tree. What's going to happen? It's going to grow right back. What you got to do is you need to sever the root of this sin so that it will never sprout up again within. Now, what are the roots of these sins? What is the root of envy and jealousy and competitiveness and being controlling, this selfishness, this lack of self-control, whether it be in gluttony or temper or uh, even in finances? What's the root? Well, I would suggest and submit to you uh, a couple things. First off, let's conclude with this. I, I, I want to plead that first off, you remember who you are. There's two things I want you to remember about who you are. The first thing you ought to remember is that you are weak. I am a weak person. In other words, by definition, I lack self-control. The Christian gospel is not one in which we are called to pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps, so to speak. The Christian gospel is one in which we divest any and all thoughts that we have control of our lives. We just lay it down and we say, Oh God, I am weak and praise be to you that when I am weak, you are strong. You see, if you ever want to have victory with self-control, if you want to have victory over envy and jealousy and competitiveness and being a controlling person, you desperately need the Holy Spirit of God. You need the Spirit of God to come and do a work in you. And so my first plea to you would be to just cry out in confession and repentance and say, Oh God, this is true. This is real in me. And I am asking you to do a work within me. God, I can't do this myself. This is not a call to self-help. I need you to do a mighty work in me. Just recognize, remember, first off, that you are weak. Another thing we ought to remember about ourselves is that we are, this is going to sound a little bit like a, the converse, we are gifted. Now, this is not me trying to compliment and say, you are such a gifted child. Here's what I'm trying to help you understand. I'm not saying you are talented, though I trust you probably are. I'm saying gifted because gifting infers that somebody gave you that gifting. And there is a great giver, God Almighty, who gives, bestows good gifts to mankind. And He has given us gifts to build up the body and to glorify His name. And so when you are struggling with a lack of self-control, and in particular when you're struggling with this lack of selflessness, when you become uh, so consumed with envy and jealousy, you ought to remember that any good you have is but a gift from God. And any advantage any other person has is but a gift from a sovereign God who knows what you need, who has lovingly given it to you, and has not promised you that your gifting will always exceed that of others. He has given you what He has appointed for His glory and your good for as many days as He affords you on this earth. And so thank Him for His gifting. Submit to it and say, Oh God, help me remember that anything I have is from You. Any good that comes from my life is an evidence of Your grace. God, I am nothing if it's not for You. I am weak 
so be strong in me. I am gifted by you, so humble me that I might not look at the fruit of my, of my labors and say, this is of me. We are weak and we are gifted. And let me conclude our time by reminding us not just of who we are. Let's conclude by remembering who God is. Just as I began, He is opposed to the proud. Let those strong words roll around in your mind once again as we conclude. This is not incidental. This is not small. Though it may feel subtle, that doesn't mean it's insignificant. He is opposed to the proud. He is an enemy of the proud. The Almighty Creator of heaven and earth, your Sovereign Lord, He is at war with pride. And so you must recognize that pride must be severed at its root. It must be a daily source of your repentance and confession. Oh God, would you kill pride in my life? I want you to see that God is opposed to the proud. But I did not finish that verse that Peter wrote. For Peter wonderfully concludes that though God is opposed to the proud, He is gracious to the humble. And so the call to you today is to humble yourself before Almighty God and He will lift you up in an appointed time. Just throw yourself upon His mercy and grace and He will be gracious to you. It is the gospel call of God that if we humble ourselves and we seek Him who alone can save us from our sins out of His abundant mercy and loving kindness, He will extend the grace we need. And so we have great hope, brothers and sisters. We who lack self-control and we who lack selflessness, we have a gracious God who will come to us and meet us when we humble ourselves before Him and confess that He is who He says He is and we are who we say we are. So together, may we fight this fight of faith and may we slay these subtle sins in our lives. Indeed, these sins of lacking self-control and lacking selflessness. Would you join me now as we pray? Father in heaven, we thank you for Christ who is so gracious to us. Would you work that grace in our lives that our, the very way we live would reflect the gospel we hold so dearly. Protect these brothers and sisters from the evil one and help them to see the fruit of these subtle sins and to sever the root of these sins in their lives. I ask this in the mighty and matchless name of Jesus. Amen.